Well, it was going to be a talk, depending on the size of the audience, so we'll yeah. see. Um, I've got to use the microphone here, everyone, because it's got to be recorded. So um, let me um, try and move this up. We didn't, uh, Jules is going to be with us here, and I, we didn't advertise that, otherwise the place would be rammed. We would have had to have used the big top. So, um, oh, here come the troublemakers. Stevie Sembo, this is your last warning. <laughs> if you ask any more provocative, any more provocative, any more provocative questions, and you're going to be barred from my next seminar. <laughs> which is tomorrow <laughs> at 7 o'clock in my living room <laughs> while I watch the news. Um, so, uh, just, just wondering, are there any more stragglers? Come, oh, here we go. Welcome, welcome, welcome. welcome. Um, what time is it? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, um, so, um, I think we will start. Uh, so, let me think. Where, let me get my notes before I start talking before, without think, thinking. Um, my extensive notes. Um, so, uh, some of you have been to the other seminars I've done this week. We've done, uh, this is the third. I suppose um, of a, a series of doom, kind of uh, uh, the the not necessarily, but now the first seminar we talked about the Good Friday Agreement. Um, we talked about 25 years on from that, um, and I suppose it was uh, there was a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of looking back, but also then trying to kind of reflect on how we can learn from that today. Welcome, come on in. Um, there's a about one and a half cups of coffee left in a machine over there, if anyone would like some. Um, uh, so first day with Good Friday Agreement. Yesterday we talked, um, I kind of opened the book of Ruth, and we looked at the issue of, um, we kind of touched on Brexit, we looked at identity and, and where we are in terms of borders, belonging, through the lens of the book of Ruth. A Moabite, uh, according to Deuteronomy 23, you know, Egyptians after three generations could be welcomed in to the children of Israel, despite, you know, basically holding the Israelites captive for 400 years, they would still be allowed into the family of Israel after three generations. But the Moabites would never be allowed in. They could never be allowed in. And then into that, into that, this Bible we have, we have the book of Ruth, which is about a Moabite <laughs> and how she was led in to the people of Israel, which is a, a lovely I suppose re re uh, maybe re-looking at at what the law is, and we looked at one of the Jewish feasts, Shavuot, where there's the remembering of the gift, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, um, and every time that they read that passage, they also read the Book of Ruth, and so they read these two things: the giving of the law, and the story of Ruth, the Moabite, the who who's often referred to as Ruth, the Moabite from Moab. You know, they're kind of, let's just double, double check that you all heard that she's from Moab, you know. Um, so that was what we were looking at yesterday. I'm not going to redo the whole thing. And 
now thank thank god the rain has come and our seminar is going to grow <laughs> um now it's really bad when people walk past your seminar and it's bucketing outside you know um so um <coughs> today uh, the idea is to look a little bit further along these lines uh here um at this issue that is uh, i guess has always been part of our national conversation but even more so since brexit and even more so since the last census results. Um, and, uh, you know, an Irish border poll, is that going to happen? Um, so this isn't necessarily a political talk for an hour of are we going to have a border poll or not. I, I suppose I just want to reflect a little bit of that. And, but really look at it through, again, look at the idea of border polls um, through the lens of, of Scripture. So... Um, I've asked Jules to kind of join me. Do you, can you come a bit closer, Jules, on this side? Because this microphone... No, don't be scared. Um, so I've asked Jules to, to join me in pondering um, some scriptures related to identity. Do you want to start? Or do you want to... Okay, yeah. yeah, you start first. Well. Go for it. Well, first of all, hi, good afternoon. My name is Julian Hamilton. I am Bishop of Larne. Uh, it's, well, yeah, no, I'm the Methodist minister in, in Larne. Uh, it's just a title I like to give myself. Um, been there for one year. Uh, I, um, I've got a, a lovely wife and three lovely stepdaughters, and I'm, I've just come back north after 14 years in Dublin, which is maybe one of the interesting bits in the conversation. So 14 years of working right in the heart of the big city, up to the, up to the country and down by the seaside in County Antrim. Bye. Loving it. So, so, so nice. So my own life has seen a massive amount of changes uh, and crossing divisions and boundaries in the last, in the last few years. Um, so I wonder what it was. <laughs> um, he, hearing that you talked about Mo, Ruth and Moabite S and Moab reminds me of in terms of crossing boundaries and in terms of those who are out and, and, and God actually brings them in, uh, the very first verses of the, of the New Testament are the ones that have always struck me, actually. You know, the ones that you never preach about because it's a boring 17-verse uh, genealogy of Jesus, and we always start at the next bit where it kind of gets to talk about Joseph. But actually, there are 17 verses there, and there are four women mentioned. In, actually, there's not. I just lied. How many are there? There seems to be people in here who know answer to this sort of question, which is always intimidating. How many are there, and who's the one that I left out? There's a clue in the question. <laughs> There's five. Excellent. Uh, I left out Mary by accident because she seems to fit into a, a different sort of category. But not only is it incredible that four women are mentioned in that genealogy, because ancient genealogies did not list women. So it just, it just wasn't part of what happened in an ancient way of listing son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. Women were left out. Here's the very first verses in the New Testament in which Christians will hold to as the text for understanding who Jesus is. And the very first introduction we have to Jesus is this genealogy that says, hang on a second, there's women in here. And then you, you look at who those women are, and it's Ruth and Moabite S from, from Moab. So completely outside, but she's somewhere in the history of the line of Jesus. There's also then there's a Canaanite, there's Tamar. Um, who remembers what Tamar had to do? Um, there are children present, and there may be, and may be children listening, but Tamar has to take some very dodgy, explicit behavior 
to make sure that she gets the rights of, of the family that, that she's entitled to. So uh, it's a horrible, crushing story from the 37, 38, Genesis 38, uh, where this woman really has to eventually put, put her life in danger because she's standing in front of, of her brother-in-law, Judah, one of the sons of Israel, her father-in-law, who has not fulfilled his obligations and family, and she's standing there, and she has, according to her behavior with the law, the right to be stoned. So they're just about to stone her, and she says, actually, I know someone who, has, who owns these things that I have. Uh, and, and Judah Sonner realizes that he has not been treating her with respect or dignity or anything else, and he, uh, and he publicly kind of bats it back. And, and accepts the blame. He do, nobody knows what's happened between them. That's the interesting bit of the text. There's some very explicit, rude things that you don't normally preach on and learn, as I discovered whenever I did. Uh, but uh, but the, the result of that is that somebody who was massively outside finds herself on the inside and in the genealogy of the person Jesus. So she's a Canaanite. You then have Ruth the Moabite from Moabite S. You then have, then, and you've got uh, Mary, so that's three of them. Can you remember the other two? Oh, that's, we'll, come, we'll finish with that one then, because you said it exactly, exactly right. Uh, there's somebody's wife, doesn't even get a name. But the other one is Rahab, who was a Probably a prostitute, uh, Zoah or something. So the word that's used for Ahab in the text is actually the word that would have been used for a a woman who who ran an inn. You know, so there is some slight. You could take the text and say, oh, she might have just been running an inn. But whenever that the same word is used in other places, it's pretty explicit. This woman was actually a prostitute. She was outside the people of Israel. Uh, she helps the spies sent by. Uh, Joshua, who are going to spy out the land of Jericho. She saves them. She lies to her own king. Here, said, we've heard you've got some spies. She says, spies here? Where? They don't find them. They live. She says, okay, I, I saved your life. How about you do this for, for me and my family? So her and her family get saved. Outsiders becoming inside. Uh, and then the text actually says, and she was brought into the people of God. You know, so actually, the people, whenever the the uh, the people of Israel, are, yeah, they they went through the land of Jericho, destroying everything in in that city. Uh, Rahab and her family were spared, and the text says joined the family of God. So again, you have another woman in the genealogy in the list to the succession of the miracle of miracles, and then the last one is, is actually Uriah's wife. Doesn't even get a mention. Who was Uriah's wife? This side, because they're all showing off. Got to be something in this. Bathsheba. Bathsheba, who was taken by King David. Um, in 1951, there was a Hollywood movie where Bathsheba was made out to be this woman who flaunted herself on the roof beside the king's palace. You know, very kind of 1950s glitzy Hollywood. Ooh, ho, ho, look at me, your highness. The text could not be more different. The text is a horrible place of, of, of abuse in the strongest possible terms. Uh, and I think that that's hanging over, actually, the writers in the New Testament, because they can't even say, oh, yes, Bathsheba is in this line. They say, the wife of Uriah. So because it's a deeply Jewish text, I think there's even a painful hangover from the depth of the story of this woman 
who was an outsider, so she's a Canaanite again. So another foreign woman who was on the outside is listed in a genealogy that shouldn't have any women in it, leading to the miracle of miracles. So in terms of inside-outside, you don't need to go further than the very opening verse of the New Testament. Good. Thanks, Jules. So you're really touching on this reality that we see in Scripture of... Because it's very easy if you just kind of cursory, you know, if there's such a thing as a cursory read of the Bible, you know, if you if you really just quick quickly read the Bible over the course of a couple of years and you're not really paying attention, it's very easy to say this is a certainly the Old Testament is a is a Jewish book for Jewish people, and you know there's lots of battles and they tend to win and every now and then they don't and it's because they've been bad and if they just do what they're meant to do they'll get back to the land and they can be all happily ever after you know. And it's quite an ethnocentric book, if, if you think about it, if you, if you take one reading of it. But as Jules has said, a closer reading, particularly when you look at it through the lens of like the genealogy of Jesus, you see actually there are these lots of people who are not, they are not one of ours. You know, we live in a very us and them world, and not just us in Northern Ireland. It's a world. I've been to, I don't know how many countries, I think I counted one time how many countries I've been, but... 50, 60-odd countries. I don't think I've ever been to a country where there wasn't some sense of an us and them, you know, a kind of difference, uh, an othered reality there. And especially as we have increase in migration, that, that brings in an art of almost a, a modern-day contemporary sense of us and them, those outsiders. Um, maybe I'll just kind of pick up one more text, and I suppose just to kind of clarify what we're trying to do in the context of border polls is what is our stance as Christians when considering the potential of Irish unity or continuing in the union? So what is our stance as Christians? Because that's what we need to be wrestling with, you know? Not as what do I do as a unionist or what do I do as a Republican? What do I do as someone who follows Jesus? I mean, that's the clear... That's what we're asking. So I'll, I'll maybe just unpack one more passage and then give it back to Jules to get your feedback on maybe what we've said. And then we'll maybe do a bit of Q&A. Kind of that good. So Luke chapter 4. I don't know. I'm sure you all are familiar with this passage. Um, <coughs> I wonder if I could just pull it up. Um, I, have, I had read this. Um, I don't know how many times I'd read this passage. 30, 40 times. I listened to it many, many times. A guy, some of you might know, an American pastor that I've kind of had over here a couple of times, Brian Zond. Um, he's a good writer, um, and um, he's kind of one of these, like, used to be an American megachurch pastor, and then um, started to kind of change his mind about some things, and so half his congregation left. But he'd be quite deeply influenced by Mennonite theology and also Eastern Orthodoxy. But he's still got a megachurch, which, <laughs> which if you live in Missouri, I guess is what you do, you know, yeah. <laughs> Um, everyone has their own megachurch. Um, no offense to uh, a meta guy from Oklahoma. They probably have megachurches there too. So, um, Anyway, there's this passage. And, and Brian Zahn did a talk on it. Actually, it was in the cathedral in Armagh. And, he, and he, um, his, his crescendo of his talk was God hates flags. Um, and, and I thought that was, you know, it was quite daring kind of place to be, to be saying this. Um, and I don't think he even understood the concept of flags or, you know, um, but uh, anyway, this passage in Luke 4, he went to Nazareth, this is Jesus, he stands in the, in, the, in the synagogue and he opens the scroll and he opens it to Isaiah, this very famous passage for us, but also for Jewish people in Isaiah 61, and he reads this passage, the spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and Brian Zahn made the point that in, in Isaiah 61, it doesn't end with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God, which for Jewish people who had their whole story was wrapped around Egyptian, Babylonian, um, uh, Roman uh, superpower domination of their little people, they were longing for a time when their God would get back on their side. We could live, old, live out the old good old days of King David where we win all the battles. We have a big, big everything. Um, um, dare I say, make Israel great again. Um, uh, and they were longing for that. They were longing. I mean, that's a, that's a historical kind of fact. That is the, the political environment in which Jesus emerged um, 2,000 years ago. And so when he stands up and reads this famous text, which is declaring the promise that God is going to rain vengeance down on our enemies, you can imagine the scene of his audience enjoying the reading. Yes, proclaim the year, year of the Lord's favor. And... Eh, and then he rolled the scroll up. And Brian Zahn said he closed the book on vengeance. And that there was no accident that Jesus stopped there. That quite clearly Jesus was taking this famous passage and saying, actually the times that we're, the, 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 my father, and I only do what my father tells me to do. I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I can't in good conscience read this next passage because it really doesn't express my heart. Uh, I would say that's what Jesus was saying. I'm not here to bring vengeance. I'm here to tell you a story of universal redemption for a whole world. Um, so come and follow me. Um, so he rolled up the scroll. And I'd heard this many times. He spoke, everyone kind of goes, oh, kind of, it's pretty, pretty good little talk. Isn't he Joseph's son? Is he a carpenter? And then Jesus said, you know, you guys, you know, prophets, um, you know, a physician, heal yourself. Do in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Uh, you know, no prophet's accepted in his hometown. He starts to kind of, there's a bit of tension arising. You know, Jesus starting to go, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, being cherished by you guys. You're not looking at me as a prophet. You're probably getting a bit annoyed that I didn't read that second part. And then he goes, you know, you know what, guys? There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. It's funny, I was doing a seminar in, in Sidon a couple of years ago and, and was, I, had, I hadn't forgotten that Zarephath was near Sidon. I was reading this out to this seminar of Lebanese people and I go, oh, Sidon, that's where we are. Do you know where Zarephath is? And they go, yeah, it's just an, a mile down the road. And I was like, no way, that's crazy. So, so there were many widows in the land uh, but uh, in the time of Elijah, but God sent uh, his prophet Elijah to a widow in Zarephath, a Syrian woman. Who were the Syrians? The Assyrians. They were the enemy superpower that were, that were kind of on their tails for centuries. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman, who was Naaman? He was a general in the Syrian army, not just like a Syrian, not a widow. He was like literally 
commanding o opposition forces, you know? Like, you know, it would be like going to Ukrainians and saying, you know, I think God actually just wants to cleanse that Russian general. You know, like, that, that is quite golly. Isn't that a bit kind of, ooh, that's... We like the Ukrainians, you know? Like, right? They're the good guy. Well, you know, like, he's saying something very deeply provocative. And then all the people in the synagogue were furious. <laughs> they drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill, or were about to throw him off a cliff, and he managed to walk away and managed to escape. I had read that many times and never really understood why they were going to chuck him off a cliff. I don't know whether I'm very simple and everyone else in the world understood what that text was. I think I just kind of thought it was something about him being prophetic and they didn't like that he did miracles and he, they didn't... I don't know. I just didn't really get the whole point of why they were going to chuck him off a cliff was he was provoking them by saying, in the times of your greatest prophets, God chose to send them to your enemies and cleanse them. And so by telling that story in this context of the seminar, when we think about Irish unity, Irish Poles, unionism, nationalism, all these isms, what is the heart of God for it? Is God a unionist or is he a nationalist? <laughs> I think, I guess the point I'm trying to make is I think maybe God hates flags, you know? Like uh, God maybe is a little bit beyond the Israelite, Moabite, Midianite, Assyrian. Which one do you prefer, God? Actually, I came here because, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved all of us. I think the challenge for us has always been in this land that we share, how do we follow Jesus, not do, how do we follow a political ideology. And I think the reality is, um, according to, I just wrote down the exact figures so I get them right, according to the, the most recent census, we now have more people who would identify as Catholic uh, in Northern Ireland than Protestant. We have 45.7% 45 say they're Catholic, 435 say they were Protestant. I was just giving, giving a tour the other day of Stormont. This, this building that was built a for a Protestant, you know, to be the, the headquarters of a Protestant state for a Protestant people, you know? Uh, uh, and yet now we have more Catholics. Wow. It was always coming. Of course, there's a few more that see themselves as British than Irish, etc. But So we're in a time of transition. Um, I heard a, a, a former Sinn Féin um, uh, chairman, Mitchell McLaughlin, recently said to me, Johnny, there, we have made it very clear that in the next 10 years, we're not going to be calling for a border poll. Now, he doesn't speak for Sinn Féin now. He's, he's an advisor to them. He's a former speaker of, at, at Stormont. But, um, but he said categorically, let's not argue about border polls right now. We're saying we're not going to do it in the next 10 years. But when I hear him say that, that makes me go, right, next 10 years, they're not going to be calling for it. But probably in 10 years in one day, they're going to be right. That's about 20, that was, that was about, a, you know, 2022, he said that. So about 2032, I reckon, we're going to be hearing very escalated talk about border polls. And, the, and as somebody said yesterday, and I'll hand, with this I'll hand over to you and then we'll take questions, uh, Sammy Douglas, uh, DUP, council he just got elected in east belfast somewhere did he he said he, what's that yeah i think they both got elected him and his son so sammy said um which i hadn't heard but somebody just told me this quote he had said 
Uh, I'm not concerned about border polls. I'm not concerned about a new Ireland, but I am concerned about the 10 years before a new Ireland. And I suppose that is quite a prophetic statement, and I suppose that is the statement we're here for. And I suppose it's the statement that I'm concerned about. That's if I'm going to live in this country that I've lived in for 40 years anymore, it's going to be about how do we prepare ourselves for changing demographics, changing allegiances, and potentially a majority of people saying they don't want to be British anymore. Um, and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, brilliant, fascinating. Um, where my mind uh, goes as well, you probably, well, you've been here, you might not have seen, but uh, there's a, the most recent poll out by, uh, by the European Union for attitudes in Ireland, North and South. It's one of the few polls that, that, that does North and South is that uh, the, the percentage of people who think that it'll be united Ireland within the 10 years has actually dropped 7% uh, than it did uh, a year ago. So the percentage of people clamoring they kind of say, we think this is going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. That percentage is actually dropped. So that's dropped by, by 7%. Um, I suppose just a couple of stories, because what I suppose my question back now, Johnny, is if there's a theology of us and them that underlies this, if there's, if there's a, a thread throughout Scripture that points towards who is in and who is out, and certainly in Northern Ireland, we are very good at saying who is in and who is out. We're actually, we're much better at saying who is out. We're pretty professional at kind of saying who, who is outside of what we understand the grace of God to be. If there are other readings of Scripture that point towards maybe that question is not as, as cut and dry, then what does that mean politically? What does it mean socially if we're genuinely going to take a theology of us and them and breaking boundaries between us because God breaks boundaries? Uh, then where, where do we need to go with political affiliations, etc.? So a couple of a couple of quick stories. One funny story because you had the, 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 the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement conversation. Was that yeah, yesterday? Two days ago, so I, I was at. Uh, I, I managed to get into a conference in Queens that celebrated that, and presidents and former presidents and yada. I've never seen so much ego in one room in my entire life. It was an incredible physical feeling in there. It was like even I was uncomfortable. Uh, but the uh, my favorite story was Alistair Campbell. Whenever uh, Rory they did, they did a recording of the rest of politics, and Rory asked Alistair, "Go on, have you, have you got to tell us a funny story?" And Alistair went, "Well, okay, there was this time whenever Ian Paisley came in to." negotiations and the DUP sat down in front of the Prime Minister and he said Mr. Pierce, he must have gone on for about 20 minutes almost just like lambasting the lambasting that you Prime Minister about 20 minutes finally he stops the Prime Minister gets to take a breath and begin to answer some of what's been said and the fire alarm goes off and so the Prime Minister's like what's, what's going on and Pierce goes I swear to goodness that Prime Minister is the lie detector <laughs> which is like, the best best story ever from the so I love hearing those background things. The other thing, the other thing that really struck me about being in the midst of that, and if we're going to try to hold in mind a theology of us and them and, and inclusion and exclusion in this conversation, uh, I saw Jerry Adams in front of me uh, on a panel discussion, stop halfway through, just like this, just stopped, saw somebody and stopped, and I went, I see Daphne Trimble here, uh, David Trimble's widow, said, and then he said, I'd like to say uh, publicly, because I think it's worth it. So I only got to know David after the negotiations. Didn't really get to know him beforehand. Uh, there's some funny stories of him trying to get them, but to know him beforehand, but there are other stories. But, but he said, I'd just like to pay tribute. I didn't understand what David Trimble had to do 
in those days. You know, we, we were concerned with us. And he says, it's worth, it's worth saying it now, all these years later, that, you know, the appreciation that I have and how, how it, it, only, it was only getting to know him afterwards that I understood the lengths that David Trimble had to go to, eventually signing his own political death warrant in the end uh, for, for a, an agreement that brought about um, uh, at least physical peace with a, with a cessation of violence, essentially. Um, and the stats bear that out. But uh, so Nancy Soderberg, former US envoy, was chairing. She said, thank you very much, Jerry. Daphne, would you stand up? Daphne Trimble stands up. There's a very warm round of applause for her in the room. She did it nervously. She didn't want to stand up at all. She had to be coaxed. Uh, but then she turns to Monica McWilliams beside her, who was next to speak, leader of the Women's Coalition. And she says, right, Monica, follow that. Uh, and Monica goes, well, well, I can. There you go. That's reconciliation right there. And she just kind of pointed between them both. You know, you had a former president of Sinn Féin publicly with a microphone building up the, the place and the role of David Trimble. You know, if we're talking about moments where we see inclusion and exclusion, and we talk about us and them, those are the moments to remember. One, one last one with a different country, which you love as much as I did. I was in, I was in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem with a group. We meet with a, a, a Jewish sociologist who outlines a history of how uh, the Jewish people look at themselves throughout history since the Holocaust primarily. A horrific, horrific moment in, in human history. Um, but he finished, any time I've been with him, he's finished his presentation to groups by talking about a friend of his who leads groups of Israelite school children uh, to tour places like Auschwitz and, and, and other concentration camps around Europe. You know, that, that you will do that if you were at school in Israel. That will be one of the trips that you take as a teenager uh, to get to know part of, of what is very deeply considered, uh, you know, the founding narratives of the state. And so he talks about another sociologist who he works with who took a group, two 15, 16-year-old boys are standing outside just after they come out of Auschwitz, and one of them turns to the other and says, we need to make sure that nobody ever does this to us again. And his mate turns around to him and goes, we need to make sure nobody does this to anyone ever again, which has, I find, a remarkably challenging um, exposure of us and them who's in and out and my social transformative responsibility within that. Uh, so there we go. Do you want to open it up and take some questions, comments? Thanks, Jules. That's very good. Any So comments, questions, all c comments. Stevie, I warned you now. I warned you, Stevie. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Mm. What what w within the ten years after a, a kind of a or before a potential border poll? Yeah, what would the potential loyalist response? Be? I'll give you a quick thing, and then the guy living in Larne <laughs> can, <laughs> can <laughs> 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 uh, show champions of. of uh, yeah, um, yeah. I I I think I think we would probably all uh, share a real concern that paramilitaries would would decide to to kind of say threaten that we're going to take up arms if there's any more any of this and i would imagine that they would progress with that and that would be a really uh, you know fearful moment and um and i would 
and you know, and by and by doing so, if they did, they would be doing everything that they said they were reacting to when the Republican movement decided to pick up arms because they wanted their way, you know. Um, and there would be no right and wrong. I think the picking up of of uh, weapons would be dangerous. I think that's where that's the role of of churches right now. I think is you know either we live in our safe middle class areas where we don't really deal with loyalism and republicanism. We deal with like flat whites and you know um, you know whatever. <laughs> trying to come up with another flat white metaphor. I can't think of one. The Guardian or you know. Um, uh, you know, or we get engaged with communities that have always been disenfranchised. You know, I spent eight years, as some of you know, living in, in the Lower Shankill and, and well, top of the Shankill as well. And we had houses when I was working for YWAM in, in the Falls, Springfield Road and, and on the Shankill. And, and I kind of got to know that psyche up close and personal because I'd kind of grown up in Coleraine after New Zealand. I moved here, was in middle class Coleraine and then lived on the Andrew Coast for a year in the middle of green fields. And then I moved to East Belfast. I moved in Old Hollywood Road, you know, opposite Campbell College. It wasn't exactly, there weren't many bonfires around there, you know. Um, and went to Sullivan Upper for crying out loud. They've never seen a bonfire. <laughs> the gentle hand foremost or whatever. What the comment? So moving to the Shankle was, was uh, a wee bit different. Um, and, and I know that those guys are deeply afraid. Um, we had one, uh, probably the family that we became closest friends with ended up having a whole bunch of kids. I can't remember. And, and they, I think, quite, quite honestly said, we have to keep up with, the ca you know, with them, pointing across to St. Peter's Cathedral. You know, we have to keep up with them. You know, it's like they had made an ideological decision as a, as a couple that they were going to have as many kids as they could. Um, so, I, yeah, I think there's a lot to be afraid of. Uh, afraid of... But then we take that fear and go, well, how are we actually, are we going to ignore it? Or are we going to get involved in transforming that fear into possibilities, you know? And that's some thoughts. Yeah, I, I'm going to say something slightly different um, because I lived in Dublin for 14 years, so I'm getting reacquainted with the North in, in many ways. I don't fear for loyalism for, for, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, you've got the likes of Don Purvis, who, who, who you said on record many times, things like, if there's United Ireland in 100 years or 200 years' time, that's what we put into the Good Friday Agreement. So that's, you know, it's almost that's what we live with. We know what we did. We enshrined the consent principle that this place cannot change. It can never be forced. It can never be changed without the consent of the people. And so actually, from her perspective as a leading loyalist politician, she's like, if it happens one day, it happens one day, but it's never going to be forced upon us, and, and we, we learn to live with that. Um, and so I like that sort of quite practical, honest conversation. The other thing is, in terms of loyalist communities, what I see in getting to know the loyalist community that where I have one of my churches and where the biggest bonfire in the world is, which is quite something to see before they light it. I've never been there whenever they light it. Uh, but they, there's a festival around it now, a community festival, and world-class DJs. Um, that's not a celebration of culture. Um, the loyalist community, they're trying to make it a celebration of culture. What, what is going on in loyalist communities is low-level criminality and control. You know, the actual political maneuvering to hold up a particular sway, and I know Carmela have done work with this, 
um, but but that sense of just criminality governing the loyalist communities rather than any sort of political ideal uh, will come into that very good question in, in other ways. The other, th the other reason why I'm not terribly frightened is that the nationalist community that I speak to, and nationalist leaders in particular, they're so aware of what happened in Scotland, they're so aware of Brexit, that the, the ones that I have had meaningful conversation with are like, nobody's going to force anything. We think there will be a United Ireland. We don't know when. Uh, I have people, leaders in their 60s, send to me, I think it might be in my lifetime, but our job now is to engage loyalism, it's to engage unionist community, to actually bring about understanding and conversation, because look at, look at the damage that Brexit did, look at the damage that even the Scottish referendum has done, and no serious nationalist politician that I talk to uh, has 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 given me the indication that they want to forge ahead. It's like no, actually, they see history bending in a particular way, and they want if there ever is a United Ireland, they want it to be helpful. They don't want it to be destructive. So I'm I'm I wouldn't kind of be. I would be more scared for all these communities and the criminality that's going on, uh, rather than kind of politically. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's good, Jules. I mean, I, I think it's good to kind of feedback because that that I think does resonate. I think, I think the politicians in the in the south, and I think even the Sinn Fein realize, you know, they've they've got to if they want to have a country to lead, um, they they've got to ensure that it doesn't spill into civil war, you know, or whatever. So I do agree with that. But uh, but there's a lot of people who are very afraid and have guns and and criminality is is very normative for them you know and 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 just saying I said earlier the church should be doing this blah 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 I just second day in a row I said it yesterday too is commend an organization like Youth Initiatives who started in in Republican West Belfast and now have inner East Belfast have work and and I think the more that we're doing that kind of thing we see organizations and churches starting off spin-off work not to kind of just save souls for heaven but to really transform earth that we're living in and uh the better so any more comments questions yes Nah, very good. Very good. Yeah. Scripturally, that God does hate figs. It's right, you know, Jesus <laughs> curse, curse the fig tree. God hates, did curse the fig tree, which which could imply that he 
cursed flags as well, you know, uh, you know. Um, yes, uh, yeah, there's a lot, whole lot in there. Um, yeah. Could yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just going to refute your point and just no, no suggest. Yeah. Um, yes, Dave. Thanks. I don't know if uh, who listens to these recordings that we've been asked to record for, but if anyone's listening, you've you've missed a couple of comments, which were about did I did we make a lot of presuppositions about there being a, the inevitability of a border poll and and Dave acknowledging the, the certainly the main churches are organized all Ireland basis and isn't that even a well you didn't say this but is that not a sign for hope that regardless of political jurisdiction the church will continue to be representing all people and I is that's a good point my, my yeah my yeah so our time is is up so I just want to quickly just um, get my word in at the end um, <laughs> I mean, I, I personally think, yeah, there's a presupposition, but the statistics are bearing it out. Not that it's going to be in 10 years, but we would be, I would be amazed if in the next 50 years there's, there's not a majority of people living in the six counties that would rather be a, in a republic. Uh, but, I, but I do take uh, the gentleman's point that it's far from certain that that's where it is right now. You know, there are many nationalists who are quite happy in the union and a lot of unionists who are pretty agnostic. Um, so, so anyway, I, but I do think we need to talk about it. And we're, if we're not talking about it, we're, we're um, sleepwalking, you know, and we do need to be very, have our eyes open and be ready for it. Can I just finish? Thank you, Jules, by the way, for um, joining me. So that was really fun. And you added uh, a lot more. Um, um, can I just uh, I just realized I grabbed a couple of these resources. I've got 10 of them with me. This is uh, some of you might know Glenn Jordan passed away uh, very tragically about three years ago. So I'm actually in the same role that Glenn was in with Corey Miller, the public theology guy. So Glenn um, put together reflections. Jules started by talking about the women, uh, including Bathsheba. And um, this is a resource for around the area of gender based violence. And um, Glenn did, uh, produced a series of reflections on Vashti um, and Esther, um, uh, Bathsheba, um, uh, the woman, Hagar in Genesis 16, um, Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, and the woman who was almost stoned to death, John chapter 8. Um, there's a series of, of reflections on those women and what it would mean to us as Christians in the face of uh, alarming statistics in and outside of the church around the area of gender-based violence. So if you'd like to take one and you're going to read it, um, there, I've got a couple by the door. I think I should have some under there too. Um, so, and if you'd like Karimila to follow up with some kind of series of uh, a small group discussion groups in a church that you're part of, not just for women, but for men to discuss gender-based violence, um, come find me somewhere on social media or um, Johnny Clark at Carmilla.org. So um, there you go.
So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jules. Any last words before you die? Thanks. I just want to say quickly, actually, in terms of the loyalist communities, I don't hear loyalist communities in, in my role, who's, who's a minister and one, saying that they're really worried about the political situation. They're worried about how to feed their kids and can I get them in contact with the food bank? And they're worried about how they're going to get clothes for September. You know, they're, 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 worried, they're worried about, you know, those are the conversations that I have in the loyalist communities, which, uh, which interestingly then makes them much more at home and in conversation with it, inner city nationalist and Republican communities as well. And, and as you have done and you know whenever you get uh, particular uh, social classes together you, you discover that some political divides mesh very very quickly with people facing the same socio-economic realities and challenges which is ever increasing in the world in which we live at the minute just in these couple of years just open it all up yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's very good. Final advert, um, I'm doing a day, 21st of September is the International Day of Peace. It's also my youngest son Callum's birthday. So w we're going to be celebrating one of those things in... Uh, in um, yes, yes, I know. His num name means dove. And never has a child been mis more, more misnamed. <laughs> um, but anyway, International Day of Peace, 21st of September. Carmel is running an event. It's meant to be in St. Anne's. Um, so it probably will be. It's not a religious service. There'll be music and um, kind of public figures and uh, lots of stuff. So come join us there and catch us out what we're doing. Thank you, everyone. And um, we're meant to do an event tonight at 9 called Borderlands in here. If you come in here, we'll give you a cup of coffee. If you still want coffee at 9 in the evening and have a wee bit of a chat, um, it'll probably be pretty low-key. So see you then, maybe. Thanks for coming.